Let's pray together. Father, thank you. Father, we ask your blessing to be upon us today. We thank you, Father, that you are our dad in heaven. And that you love us and you sent your son to die for us so that we can be brought into the family, your family, to be your children. Father, thank you that all that you do is perfect, is good. You will never leave us. You will never forsake us. You will always care for us. You will always provide for us. And Father, you are working in us to complete that which in which you started. Lord, we matter to you. You're our good Father in heaven. And Lord, as we open up your word today, we thank you for it. We thank you that you did not leave us uh, as orphans, but adopted us into your family and then gave us your promises, your precious word. And Father, we ask that you would reveal yourself mightily to us. Lord Jesus, we exalt you and, and praise you. Holy Spirit, we want you to come and open our hearts and minds to see the goodness and the glory and the majesty and the beauty of God. And we ask all this in Jesus' good name. Amen. Alright, so kids are dismissed. We are in Second Peter together. We are opening up to Second Peter chapter 2. Beginning where we left off. We love to do expository preaching. Going through books of the Bible. Um, we are going to wrap up Second Peter at the end of June this month. We'll launch into a summer series. We wrapped up, um, we've got, I think, I think seven questions, seven or eight questions. We're going to be dealing with eternal security. We're going to be dealing with preservation of the saints. Some really interesting questions, theologically, you know, important questions that were asked. We're going to be dealing with issues of heaven. Um, I don't have the list in front of me, I meant to bring it. Uh, we're going to be dealing with issues of how to live missionally as a missionary in a corrupt culture. You know, where are the boundaries? We're going to be talking about that. We're going to be talking about um, sovereignty and suffering. People have asked that question as we've been going through First Peter and seeing the suffering of the saints. So we'll be looking at Job 1 and 2. So that, that's going to take us uh, through the summer. And then in the fall, we'll launch our new series through the book of Acts. Um, I really feel the Lord pressing on us to go through that book as we see... Um, uh, the work of the Spirit of God as the church is birthed and, 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 and the testimony and the power uh, of God in His people declaring the good news of the Gospel. So we'll be in a gospel, uh, excuse me, the book of Acts uh, come this fall, written by Luke, if you're not aware of that. We'll actually look a little bit at Luke because he's the author. Um, so that's where we're going in the spring and in the fall. And um, so be reading your Bibles, of course. So let's look at Second Peter and chapter 2, we'll pick up at verse 10 and looking through verse 22. And let me just set the stage for you. The Apostle Peter's life is about to end at the hands of Nero. He's the emperor of Rome. He's going to rise up and murder and persecute and kill Christians. And because Peter loves Jesus and Peter loves the people that belong to Jesus, his church, he's writing a letter to warn them about false teachers and false prophets who were, who were gathering together and infiltrating the church. Peter begins the letter affirming that our salvation is in the righteousness of Christ. He had already mentioned in 1 Peter chapter 3, one of my favorite verses. He says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous, that's Him, for the unrighteous, that's us, so that we can be brought to God. 
in the opening of Second Peter, he writes uh, Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus, to those who obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness, not by our own righteousness, but by the righteousness of God and Savior Jesus Christ. It's not our goodness, not our moral deeds. It is Jesus' righteousness, His perfect life, His atoning death, His resurrection from the grave, that we can be reconciled and uh, made as children of God. He then tells, Peter tells us in Second Peter, that we are to add or supplement our faith with seven godly characteristics so that we can be fruitful and effective in the knowledge of Jesus. He reminds us that our new life is lived out by applying the gospel to every area of life. I love that verse. I hope you have it underlined in your Bible. Second Peter chapter 1, verse 9. In fact, he says, For whoever lacks these qualities, these seven godly characteristics, is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten the gospel, that he was cleansed from his former sins. He ends the chapter describing an event that took place, the transfiguration of Christ, transfiguration of Christ, where the veil of Jesus' humanity was, was lifted and we got a glimpse of, of, of the intrinsic glory of Jesus. And he says th- that the, the experience up on that mountaintop is true and right and has happened, but he states that the Word of God is even more sure, more fully confirmed. He says that the truthfulness and the reliabilities of the Scripture is because it was produced or given to us by men who were moved along by the Holy Spirit. He ends chapter 1 and going into chapter 2 on the offense, dealing with the issues at hand, false teachers that have been infiltrating the church. He says, there's the Word of God, there's men moved by the Word of God, by, by the Spirit of God, spoke from God, yet there are other people who say that's true, but they're not speaking from God. They're not men moved along by the Holy Spirit. They're false teachers that are speaking as well. And Peter wants them to know, and he points out falsehood in the church. We said last week, sometimes you've got to go negative. Sometimes it's, it's important to warn people. So the last time we met two weeks ago, the false teachers, we looked at their character and their consequences. Very important to see that they had infiltrated secretly destructive heresies in the church. And we said there's a difference between error and heresy. You can be wrong about something. You could say something stupid and silly and really not thinking it through. And that's error. But then there's heresy. There's doctrines that are of essential to the orthodoxy of Christianity. Things like the virgin birth, the atoning work of Christ, who Jesus is, God who became man, the Trinity. Those, those things that are essential, teachers come in, they teach false teaching, and they lead you astray. And they're heretics, he calls them. Destructive heresies. He says they even deny the master who bought them. Right? They're marked by sinful lifestyles and they become very, very popular, Peter says. They're greedy. They're exploiters. They're, they're blasphemers. And then he finishes, which we looked at uh, two weeks ago, that their consequences was like in the days of Noah, remember? And in the days of Lot, that God was able to rescue the godly and hold those who are ungodly, the heretics, the liars, the false teachers... Hold them till the day of judgment. They're not going to get away with it. This week, as we continue with the false teachers, the rest of chapter 2, we'll notice just two things. First, their behavior. We're going to look at a little bit closer. Let me move that on. A little bit closer on what their characters. We'll look at their behavior. How they run their mouths. How what they see with their eyes. And what their desires of their heart are like. The behavior. And then their bondage. 
Paul, excuse me, Peter lays out that false teachers are empty. They will enslave you. And what their end looks like. So that's our outline, okay? Their behavior, mouths, eyes, and heart, bondage, emptiness, enslavement to their end. So that's where we're headed this morning. First, their mouths. Listen to the Word of God. Second Peter chapter 10, verse, uh, chapter 2, verse 10b. Bold and willful. They do not, talking about false teachers, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. Whereas angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemy judgment against them before the Lord. But these, false teachers, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant, will also be destroyed in their destruction. Suffering wrong as the wage for their wrongdoing. They, they count it a pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are, they are blots and blemishes reveling in their deception while they feast with you. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed, accursed children. Don't hold back, Peter. Let us know what's on your mind. You know, how do you deal with such harsh words? This is how you know we're committed to expository preaching. Pastors usually don't wake up. Pastors don't usually wake up and go, you know what? I think I'll preach this passage today. This is where we are. We have to deal with this. I think Second Peter is probably one of the most neglected books in the New Testament. How do we approach a passage like that? Let me suggest we approach it as a parent would approach their children, or being a parent. Peter's an apostle. He's a a spiritual father. He's a pastor to these churches in Asia Minor. He loves the sheep that he shepherds. He, like any good pastor, is protective of his flock. He, like any good parent, loves the children that he is in caring or that he cares for. So think of it this way. If a wolf comes to your house and wants to devour your children... They, they want to lead them into drugs. They want to lead them into sexual sin. What would you want to do? Shoot them. Agreed. No, no, you can't do that. Yeah, yeah, that's what you do to wolves. Right, exactly. So, so remember a couple, two years ago we did a series on the seven deadly sins and we talked about how anger and wrath is connected to love. And we said, you know, sometimes, you know, uh, uh, Aggression is an appropriate response to anger. Anger is a natural response to things that threaten those and, and things that we love. Actually, if you don't get angry, you're Spock or a Vulcan or something. I don't know. But it, it's natural. God is a jealous God. He, he's, a, he's a good God. He's not the, the jealous kind of stalking, creepy, freaky thing. You know, He cares about His creation. He cares about the people that He has created and His own creation. So when, when people come and abuse, that's what's going on in Second in Peter, they're God's children, he rightly gets angry. When people hurt kids, when people oppress poor, the poor, he, 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 he rightly gets angry. And Peter here is expressing these, these harsh words because teachers have infiltrated and, and, and introducing heresies, drawing people away from the one God, creator God. So he has harsh words. You know, I don't think our culture can deal with this. And that's why it seems like so, like, really? 
Like, do, do we have to go there? Sometimes we do. You know what it looks like? You know what it sounds like? Jesus <laughs> spoke more about hell and, uh, than any other person in the Bible. Matthew 23, Woe to you, scribe and Pharisees, hypocrites! Woe to you, blind guides, blind fools, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. Woe to you, scribe, Pharisees, hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and plate, but inside you're full of greed and self-indulgence, you blind Pharisees. Really? Woe to you, scribe, hypocrites. You're like whitewashed tombs. You look so nice on the outside, but inside... Oh man, dead people's bones and you're all unclean. Woe to you, scribe and Pharisees, you serpents, brood of vipers. How are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Jesus, I'm reading scripture. Paul, Philippians 3.2 says, look out for the dogs. Talking about false teachers. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. 1 Timothy 4, the Spirit will in later times... Depart, well, he says, now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits' teachings of demons. Seems pretty harsh. Through insincerity, in, through the insincerity of liars whose conscience are seared. First Timothy 6, if anyone teaches a different doctrine, don't agree with sound words of the Lord Jesus and the teaching accord with godliness, he's puffed up. He's conceited. He understands nothing. Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. They breed quarrels. I love Titus. He tells Titus, For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. Then he says, They must be silenced. Now, if that was Don Corleone, there would be a problem. They must be silenced. Like, that's a hit on them. Uh, they're upsetting whole families. He goes, some of them are Cretans. Even the Cretans say they're always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. And Paul writes, the testimony's true. My favorite, though, my favorite's got to be Galatians 5. False teachers were infiltrating the church in Galatia, teaching that you have to be circumcised in order to be saved, adding works plus salvation, works plus grace equals salvation, which is not true. So he says, brothers, if I still preach circumcision, law plus grace, why am I being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who are unsettled, you would emasculate themselves. Really, Paul? All the way? You seem a little upset, don't you? Yeah, he does. Paul even mentions them by name in 1 Timothy. 2 Timothy calls out Alexandria, the coppersmith, who, who the Lord will repay according to his evil deeds. They will, uh, false teaching will spread like gangrene, among them Harmenius and Philetus. Like, these are the guys that are doing it. Peter tells us in this passage of Scripture that these false teachers will be known by what they say, what they see, and their desires of their hearts. Look at verse 10 with me again. Bold and willful, they don't tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. Whereas angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemy and judgment against the Lord. But these, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheme about matters which they are ignorant about. They will be destroyed in their destruction, suffering wrong as the wage for their wrongdoing. Three times, if you notice in your Bible, three times what Peter says is blasphemy. 
They're blaspheming. There's blaspheming. They're blaspheming. They're, they're speaking words that are excuse me, irreverence, derogatory, untruths about God. They're, they're mocking. They're, they're, they're slandering Jesus. And they're arrogant. They speak out of pompous arrogance. And Peter says they're so arrogant, ag- they are so arrogant, they blaspheme the holy ones. What most commentators believe is that what Peter's saying is that angels, fallen angels, evil angels, because the next verse talks about good angels, that, that these arrogant teachers are actually speaking blasphemy against these fallen angels that even the good angels, the ones that are before the throne of God, don't even do. That's how arrogant they are. You know, we see that in today's culture, in today's times, too. People wearing very expensive rings, $1,000 suits, walking around platforms, you know, commanding demons, binding demons. It's a show. They're exalting themselves. They're puffed up. They want your money. They got the jets. They're driving all over the place. That's what he's talking about. Peter says, listen for their arrogance, their flippant and irreverent words. They're, they're animals. Driven by the instinct, behaving like animals in their naturally fleshly appetites with, with no regard to Scripture, no regard to spiritual things. They're driven by their lust. They, they, they are self-absorbed. They are self-indulgent people not yielding to the Spirit of God. And like animals, they're going to be caught and destroyed. Peter's not saying, you know what, let's go out and just murder animals. He's contrasting the, these wild animals of his day and the only thing they do really can do is destroy them as just like the false teachers, that someday they'll be caught too. They're going to be exposed and they will be done away with. He says they suffer wrong as the wages of doing wrong. It's an interesting Greek phrase. It means basically they reap what they sow. They, they reap wrong against God and God will then turn that on them and they will reap what they sow. The mouth speak blasphemy and look at their eyes. The eyes see evil. Verse 13. They count it a pleasure to revel in the daytime. You know what he means? He means that they don't even have enough sense to do it in the dark. They're out in broad daylight, right in the middle of the day. You can see them on television. That they don't even have enough sense to do it when it's dark. They're blots and blemishes. Reveling in their deception, they feast with you. Blots and blemishes. Peter's talking about being unfit, unuseful. Like the Old Testament, the, the animals would be, have blots and blemishes. They couldn't be sacrificed. Or if something was wrong that, uh, with a priest who had a blot or a blemish, he couldn't enter into the, the, the court or, or the place of worship and sacrifice. He says, they're blots and blemishes. In fact, they're feasting with you. Underline that. Think about that. He's talking about communion table. They're feasting. They have that love feast. They have that, they're with you. They're sitting next to you. They're sitting next to you. They're not wearing red capes with pitchforks. Come and join our table. They're secret. They're deceptive. He said their eyes are full of adultery, insatiable for sin. What he means is that their eyes, that which they look at all the time, is for sexual encounters. They turn the communion table into a a, a sexual predator time through the communion. Insatiable means that they are never satisfied. It's unbridled pleasures, sinful pleasures. David Helm writes, uh, I love what he wrote. He wrote, follow a man's eyes and they will lead you to the hidden desires of his heart. These men 
And, and you know what? We see it today. We see the, the Vidian uh, uh, compound and all these other cults that arise up when you peel back the layers from their false teaching, which you will always find. I don't know if I want to say always, but what you will mostly find is sexual crazy sin. That's what he's saying. False teachers blasting with their mouths, look at their eyes lustfully, and look at their hearts. Verse 14b. They entice unsteady souls. That little phrase, entice unsteady souls, is the heart of the issue, of the, of the, of the main thing that Peter is, 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 is getting at. It's the antithesis of his aim. It's, it's, it's in complete contrast. He's trying to write to Christians, young Christians, to say, stay strong in the Lord. Here's the Word of God. It's more sure. It's more firm. Stick with what you know. Know the Scripture. He says what they're trying to do is the opposite. Unsteady souls, new Christians, don't really know the Word. Kind of not grounded yet kind of looking for a church, not really sure. These, these false teachers and prophets will, will seek men out, women out like that. That's what he's saying here. And what's so cool about this is that word entice is a fishing term. Peter the fisherman, who's fishing souls. Jesus said, you will be fishers of men, who is, who is setting bait and, and looking to bring people into the kingdom so they can meet Jesus, have their sins forgiven. He says contrary to what's really going on with these false teachers. They are enticing and fishing men as well, but they want to introduce them to hell and damnation. That's what he's saying. Their hearts are trained in greed. Trained gymnasio, where we get the word gym, gymnasium. Their, their hearts are getting a workout in lustful greed. Man, if that does not describe false teachers of today. God said to me today, sow the seed of $200 right now. You send the money to me. I will anoint it with my sweat and you will get $400. Crazy. Crazy. Right? I mean, that's what he's talking about. Fancy, lots of money, jets, send them money and they will prosper you. Greed. Greed. So these false teachers, arrogant, they're immoral, they're adulterers, they're greedy, they're slanderers, they're selfish, and we wonder why Peter goes, accursed children. Martin Luther, great reformer, he said this, You must treat dogs and swine differently from men, and wolves and lions differently from weak sheep. With the wolves, you cannot be too severe. With the weak sheep, you cannot be too gentle. And then Peter moves to his case in point, verse 15. Forsaking the right way, diverted, forsaking the right way, they have gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, son of Baor, who loved gain from wrongdoing, but was rebuked by his own transgressions. A speechless donkey spoke with human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. What he's talking to in your Bibles is Numbers chapter 23 through chapter 24. You can look it up when you get home. It's a good illustration. Peter picks a good person in the Old Testament to, to describe what it was like to follow the ways of God and then turn aside. Setting your mouth, your eyes, and your ears on the things that are not of God. If you don't know the story, the king from Moab... Tells or asks Balaam 
to, to preach and to curse God's people. At first, Balaam says, no, I'm not doing that. I'm only going to do what God wants me to do. And then the king comes and, and, and ups the ante. He was self-seeking and, and cunning, and, and, and he was going to use his prophetic power to line his pockets. And when God would not let him do that, Balaam actually told the king of Moab that he should get his men together and go, excuse me, his women together and go and, ha- and have them go and have sex with the men of Israel to violate and to sinfully, sexually sin against God. He was a daytime reveler too. And as the story goes, he was on his way to see Balak. He's riding a donkey and a donkey sees an angel of the Lord in the path. And stops. Balaam doesn't see it. The donkey does. He gets off the donkey three times and beating the thing. Beating it. Until a little Dr. Doolittle happens. And the donkey starts speaking. Like, what are you doing? Funny story. It's like Peter saying, the donkey knew better than you. He knows better than you. False teachers that Peter's talking about, like the story of Balaam, are trying to get Christians to participate in idolatry and sexual sins. And Balaam's motive was greed, as with the false teacher. And when we reject the Word of God, reject the will, we reject the will of God, people become irrational. <laughs> Balaam was rebuked by a donkey, by a mute animal. If it don't get worse than that, I don't know what does. Can you imagine, can you imagine, just for a minute, you're in sin, you know you are, you're not paying no attention to you, and your dog looks up to you and goes, you know what, you're an idiot. You're like, <laughs> are you really going there tonight? You'd be like, you know, am I hallucinating from the old days? I mean, what the heck is going on here? Michael Green sums up the section really well. He says, they are dominated by their lusts. Their passion are, are giving free reign with the result that they behave like animals while the mental and spiritual sides of their humanity suffer atrophy, drying up on the vine. That's what that looks like. That's their behavior. Look at their bondage to emptiness. Verse 17. These false teachers are waterless springs, mist driven by a storm. For them the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. Verse 18, for speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sexual, sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. Alright, see the big picture here? Dry climate, you're in the east, spring of water, an oasis in the desert, you go running over there because you're thirsty, maybe you're even going to die unless you have something, and when you get there, it's empty. Or you're a farmer and you see the thick clouds coming and you need rain. And the clouds just come and go. Farmers don't live in New York these days. But anyway, just blows right over. He says, Peter says, look, the false teachers have messages. Uh, They promise to quench your thirst, but they don't deliver. They're empty. They're waterless springs driven. Mist driven by a storm. They fail to bring... And to give what they promise. The only thing that awaits them is gloom and darkness. You know, one could only wonder as Peter's writing this, 
We know that Peter was an eyewitness of the teaching and life and ministry of Jesus. And we can only wonder if, if Peter, as he's writing this, he's thinking of that day, John 7. Jesus stands up at, the, at one of the great feasts of Israel. And in the midst of that feast, he stands up to the crowd and says, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the Scriptures has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And, and what's interesting, in verse 18, the word loud boasts, if you have ESV, is hyperonka, which means it's oversized and swollen. It's swelling with nothing. Empty promises. It looks great. Great words. You sound good. Oh, man. Oh, I can live a prosperous life. I can have no problems whatsoever. I'm a winner, and I'll win at all that I do. Empty promises. Empty promises. The word sexual passion. He's used it three times already. He used it in verse 2, talking about teachers in general. He used it in verse 7, talking about the filthy, wicked, sexual sins of Gomorrah. He said these people are, are, are focused about their own pleasure and live life of sexual promiscuity, drunkenness, you could say gluttony, and just one big party after another. They want to entice you, but once they do, it's really empty. And you know what else it is? It's enslavement. Verse 19. They promise what? Freedom, of course. But they themselves are slaves of corruption. For, wherever, for whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. Sounds like Peter's paying attention again. Jesus said in John, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Isn't that the promise of idolatry? Isn't that the promise of addictions? Right? And here's the big idea. They're, they're, they're telling them, listen, evil spirits, false teachers are telling them, join us, you'll be free. You'll get what you need. They're selling what you need to feel like you're someone, like you have value and, and, and you have worth. And, and they're selling these, these schemes. If you only have this, you'll control your own destiny. You'll have meaning in life. For the alcoholic, it's worship me. I'll help you cope with life. I'll help you forget your pain. So we worship alcohol. Mark Driscoll said, we worship our way into idolatry and we must worship our way out of idolatry. It's the worship disorder. Martin Luther said, if your heart cleaves to anything else, you have another God. So when your job tells you this is what you need to be successful and to be somebody, we worship our job. When sex tells you now that you feel loved, I will fill the void. And you say no to God, no to the boundaries of sex within the confines of marriage. You worship it. All these lies tell you freedom is around the corner. Parents have to be careful. We could idolize our children. If my kids only do this, if my kids only become that, I'll feel worthwhile and valued. It's a losing battle. It's bondage, not freedom. False saviors, sin, idols always lie. They always promise freedom but deliver Slavery promises life, but it brings death. Sin has a way of gradually bringing a person until there's no way of escape unless by the gracious intervention of Jesus. And let me pause here just, just to remind us, as, as, as someone who loves you, 
we don't always walk off the beaten path in an abrupt manner. The one who finds himself hiding drugs, bottles in bathrooms and closets didn't start that way. The one who commits adultery doesn't just fall into sin in a moment's notice. It's usually a gradual thing. It's a look. It's a feeling. It's a lunch. It's sharing information. It's a late night meeting. It's a kiss. The one who's stealing large amounts of money from their company starts out with a little bit and a little bit more and a little bit more until enslavement, entrapment. When the Scriptures speak about freedom, it doesn't mean I get to do whatever I want. That's not freedom. That's not biblical freedom. Okay? And that's not true either. Right? It's the very thing Peter's fighting against. Peter's fighting against, we talked about this, antinomianism, anti-meaning against, nomos meaning law. I'm a Christian now. I can do whatever I want. I want to be free. That's not freedom. It's bondage. It never works. Rejecting the moral law of God and doing your own thing, being your own Savior, is by definition sin. The freedom that Jesus offers you is the means of fulfillment for the glory of God. To the declaration, to the, to the uh, response to, to, to God's majesty and beauty that He's enough. It is enjoying a freedom in the works and the will and the ways of God. Those who live by God's truth enter into more and more freedom. Those who live by their own truth, by the deception truth, by the deception and by false teachers are in bondage more and more. Now, this is a paradox of Christianity. You're never totally free until you're totally submissive. Warren Worsby, good commentator, Warren Worsby writes this. I think he captures it beautifully. He says this. Just as a gifted musician finds freedom and fulfillment putting himself or herself under the discipline of a great artist or an athlete under the discipline of a great coach, so the believer finds true freedom and fulfillment under the authority of Jesus Christ. William Cowper, he's a Puritan writer and a poet, um, he wrote a poem I want called Love Constrained to Obedience. And he's talking about this, this moral, this law of God and how to be free so that we don't reject the moral standard of God, the moral law of God, but how do we fulfill it and how do we live our lives not in enslavement to sin, but freedom to obey. And this is what he writes. He says in this, in this poem, No strength of nature can suffice to serve the Lord aright. In other words, I can't find the strength to do it. And what she has and she misplies for want of clearer light. In other words, all that I'm trying, all that I'm doing, not get me anywhere. How long beneath the law I lay in bondage and distress, I told the precept to obey, I'm trying to do it, but toiled without success. Then, to abstain from outward sin was more than I could do. Now I feel... It's power within. I feel I hate it too. Then all my servile works were done, a righteousness to raise, now freely chosen in the Son. That's Jesus. I freely choose His ways. What shall I do was the word. What, what that I may worry and grow, that I may worthier grow. How am I going to grow and, and, and serve God and love Him? Listen to what he writes at the end of this. What shall I render to the Lord is my, is my inquiry now. He says, to see the law by Christ fulfilled and hear his pardoning voice, changing a slave into a child and duty into choice. To see the law of Christ fulfilled 
His righteousness. And hear His pardoning voice, forgiven child. Changes a slave into a child and duty into choice. Listen. Because Christ sets us free from the penalty and the power of sin, we are free to obey His every command. Not because we have to so that we will be loved and that we will be accepted, but because He does love us. He does accept us by the cross of Christ so we get to. There's a totally different approach. We get to. Because Christ fulfilled the law and set us free from the power and penalty of sin, we now have the freedom to enter into a relationship where we could say, Yes, Father. Yes, Father. And look at their end, verse 20. Their enslavement, their end. Verse 20. For if after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. Some look at this passage, and we'll talk about this for a minute, we'll talk about it more in the summer. Uh, some people look at this passage and they say, well, see, these false teachers lost their salvation. They were a Christian, they were born again, and now they're not Christians anymore. What they were, now they're lost. They're what they were before, they're worse now, and they were on their way to hell. There's several problems with that interpretation, that this is a, a, a scripture lesson or what Peter's trying to teach us, that they were once Christians and they're not Christians. That's, that's, that's very problematic, and I'll tell you why. The same guy who wrote this, wrote in 1 Peter 1 that our salvation was according to God's mercy, not ours. That we, He, God, has caused us to be born again through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That our salvation is an inheritance that's imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven by the omnipotent power of God, guarded for you until Jesus comes back. So, okay, Peter, uh, did you forget about the letter you just wrote? I mean, what are you saying? So it can't possibly mean one can lose his salvation when it was a gift anyway. And it's secured and kept by the power of God. It's just, it's just a contradiction of Scripture and there is none. There are a lot of people that speak this way who were moved along by the Spirit of God. Paul wrote in Romans 8, Nor height, death, nor anything in all creation can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing. Nothing means nothing in the Greek, just so you know. Jude 24, Now to the one who is able to keep you from falling... And to cause you to stand rejoicing without blemish before His glorious presence. So Jude, Peter, Paul, Jesus. Let's go with the final one. Jesus. I give them eternal life. And they will never perish. No one will snatch them from My hand. My Father who is given to Me is greater than all. That includes you. You're not jumping anywhere. Greater than all. And no one can snatch them from My Father's hand. Verse 30. John 10. You see, Paul uses Christian vocabulary to talk about these false teachers because it was at one time in their lives that gave every, the, every appearance to be a Christian. He's talking about those who infiltrated the church. They confessed Jesus Christ, though. They were probably baptized. They were probably serving in the church. But as time went on, the false teachers, those they persuaded, although physically in the church, they weren't part of the invisible church, the people of God that God knows. And God sometimes is the only one that knows. So at one time they participated, they gave evidence, but as time went on, it revealed that they were never truly belonging to God. First John 2, they went out from us, people in the church, we gathered together, they were baptized, they gave testimonies, they went out from us. Why? 
They didn't really belong to us. 1 John 2.17 For if they belonged to us, they would have remained with us. But their going out showed that none of them actually belonged with us. Very clear. And in the light of all of this Scripture, those who profess, this is the second reason, so one is Scripture can't contradict Scripture. The Scripture is clear about our security that's in Christ because of what He has done. Peter, Jude, Jesus all speak about it. The second thing I want you to see in this passage is what are they escaping from? Worldly defilement, that's all. There are those who have external changes in their life. They're, they have different behaviors. They, they, they kind of look different. They, they, they escape. They're the ones that said, you know what? I'm not drugging anymore. I'm cleaning up my act. I'm not sleeping with my boyfriend anymore. I'm not sleeping with my girlfriend anymore. I need to repent of my sins. And you know what? They exchanged, uh, excuse me, the outward the outward looks different. Their friends are calling them on the phone. Yo, where were you last night? Dude, i got to get up ready for church. Really? Like, they had that external change. They had a change of lifestyle. They're the ones who began to clean up their lives. But think about it, even from my own experience. There are those who profess to be Christians and are involved in the church. And listen up, this is a warning from Peter. There are those who are involved in the church that look like they belong. And the gospel that's being preached and taught, they're coming under some of it generally in a covering and, and they're seeing some blessing take place. They're seeing some of their lives get put back in order. They're seeing the principles of God lived out in their lives. And, and they're seeing some change, but it's all external. There's not a new heart. And after a while, they get tired of doing what everybody wants them to do. There's not a devotion to the King of kings and the Lord of lords who was crucified on their behalf, who died in their place, and out of gratitude and, 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 and love and the mercy that He's shown to them, send me where you want, Lord. Where do you want me to go? What do you want me to do? I, I want to obey you. Look what you've done for me. I'm forgiven. I have the mercy of God. I have the grace of God. My heart is exploding with gratitude. Command me. Where, command me. Different than saying, oh yeah, the pastor said, this is what I need to do, is my friends want me to do, this is what they want me to act, this is how they want me. One's an external chain, one's a heartfelt chain. I think that's what he's talking about. The first day, he says, is worse than the second. The first day was, I'm in the gospel, I hear the good news, I'm responding. Peter says, you know what, it would be better off if you never even came into the church. Because now it's even worse than it was before. Before it was just eternal damnation, now it's eternal damnation, and you know the gospel and you know the truth. The first day is worse than the last. You know, greater privileges results in greater responsibility. Do you know the Bible teaches degrees of punishment and degrees of, of rewards? Matthew 11, Luke 16. Joseph Nahar, he's a writer, he writes, Ignorance can be a very bad thing, but disobedience is always worse. Ignorance can be a really bad thing, but ignorance, disobedience, excuse me, is always worse. And Peter concludes in verse 22. What the true proverb says has happened. The dog returns to its own vomit, and the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. Strong words. Peter says two proverbs. One's biblical, one's extra-biblical. For a Jew, dogs, pigs, unclean. Right? Unclean, dirty, and vile. No accident that Jesus called false teachers, those who opposed the Word of God, in John, excuse me, Matthew 7, he says, do not give dogs what is holy. Do not throw your pearls before pigs. 
lest they trample and, uh, and turn underfoot and turn and attack you. The point is this, folks. I, Peter ends. The point is this. Dogs characteristically, and I'll look this up, because I'm like, hmm. You know, you read something, you're like, I wonder if that's true. I don't own a dog. It's been a while. Dogs characteristically return to their vomit. They throw up and they eat again. I know it's breakfast time. I'll say it one more time. They throw up and they eat again. And it turns out, if they don't digest it right, sometimes they bring it home to their other cut. Like, like this is something that's characteristic of them. And no matter what, it doesn't change. A pig, no matter how much you shine that pig, it's running right back in the mud. And what Peter is saying, look, externally, nothing's changed. The dog still throws up and eats, and the pig still runs in the mud. Nothing's changed. Outwardly, you can clean the pig, but you can't change the pig. They're unclean. They're unclean. Now, now pointing out cults is useful in the church. I, I, I get that. But ultimately, and this is the way I want to end today, ultimately the truth of the Christian faith that will serve us as the best protection against heresy, the truth of the Christian faith, the Scripture, sound doctrine, you know, solid, sure orthodoxy will keep us from heresy. Peter Excuse me, Paul told Timothy in Ephesians, devote yourself to sound, healthy doctrine. J.C. Ryle wrote this a long time ago, right on as we close. You live in a world where your soul is in constant danger. Enemies around you every side. Your heart, your own heart, is deceitful. Bad examples are numerous. Satan is always laboring to lead you astray. Above all, false doctrine and false teachers of every kind abound. This is your great danger. To be safe, you must be well armed. You must provide yourself with the weapons which God has given you for your help. You must store in your mind the Holy Scripture. This is to be well armed. Arm yourself with a thorough knowledge of the written Word of God. Neglect the Bible and nothing I know, nothing I know of, can prevent you from error if a plausible advocate of false teaching shall happen to meet you, end quote. You know, like Peter, the good pastor, like God, the good father, let me warn you in love. Examine your hearts. Who are we seeking to follow? Are we looking for teachers, doctrines, to, to, to tickle our ears, or are we willing to be confronted with the truth of God's word? so that we can obey Him and we can be free. Jesus set us free. Let's not go back to enslavement. Don't get caught up in the prosperity nonsense. Don't get caught up in extra-biblical revelation, meaning God spoke. I mean, God does speak. I don't want to get into that now. We talked about it in 1 Corinthians. But if somebody has the general conversation for three hours long every day, something's wrong. I was listening to this crazy Sid Roth. I know I mentioned it before. This guy called, and the band can come up while I tell you the story. The guy called the show. And this is how you know, I want everyone in the church to be so indoctrinated with the gospel that when they hear something like this, they know something's wrong. The guy called up for 40 minutes, told him God told him something's going to happen. We don't know when. We don't know how. You know, very typical. We're not really sure. He's just talking. 40 minutes about the judgment God was going to have in America. 40 minutes. I listened. Getting madder and madder. 40 minutes. Not one time did anyone on the show say the word Jesus. That should be your first clue. Second thing, not one of them ever, ever mentioned the gospel. 
no matter what happens in America, no matter what happens to our culture, our, our finances, whatever, I will tell you what's most important. Not going to hell, okay? Like, the world can blow up, they could send atomic bombs, and we could all die. What God would want you to know is that Jesus Christ paid the penalty for your soul. That He went to the cross, lived a perfect life, died an atoning death, rose from the grave, and eternal life is in Him. And that no matter what happens, you're with Him. He'll return, He'll have established His eternal kingdom, and all of life will be consummated when King Jesus comes back. That's most important. Forty minutes, not one word. I'm hoping that you guys be like, you know what, he didn't mention Jesus. He didn't mention the gospel. At all. How do you escape the wrath to come? Trust in Jesus. That's what you need to do. Trust in Jesus. Bill mentioned this last week. And we'll close with this. John chapter 10. Jesus the good shepherd. The thief comes only to steal and to kill and destroy. Jesus says, I've come that you may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a higher hand and not a shepherd who does not own the sheep sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. The wolf snatches them up and scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand and he doesn't care about the sheep. But I, Jesus said, I'm the good shepherd. Not the false shepherd, not the lying shepherd. I'm the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me just as the Father knows me. I know them and I lay down my life for the sheep. Have you trusted in Christ? The gospel is we're so desperately wicked and sinful, Christ had to die. You are loved, valued, and treasured that He was glad to, as Tim Keller would say. Do you trust Jesus? Do you know Jesus? Have you run to Jesus? Have your sins been forgiven from Jesus? Or are you seeking something else, somewhere else? Turn to Christ. Trust Him today. Father, thank You for Your Word today. A stern word of warning, we understand. But we're thankful. And as we search our hearts, Father, we pray that You would speak to our hearts. And there are some here that have never made a decision for You today. And we pray Your Spirit would bring that conviction and show them the glory of Christ and all that He has done for them. Father, we pray that You would impart life to that dead heart. And Father, we pray for those that are here that, that know Jesus, but they, they've walked off the beaten path. Lord, we know that repentance, forgiveness restoration are always available to the heart who will turn back to their good God and Savior. So we pray right now for those who have never trusted Christ will trust Him. Those who are walking away will turn back to Jesus. And Father, together as Your people, we will worship You. We will lay down our idols and trust in You alone. Receive our worship, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.